electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Well, on this quad-witching Friday, a down day for stocks, but another up week. That's the scorecard on Wall Street, but the action is just getting started. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan with John Fort. Coming up this hour, the latest read on bank balance sheets from the Fed. We're going to bring you that breaking news as soon as it crosses. Plus, we're going to talk to former Morgan Stanley Asia chairman Stephen Roach about investing in China as Micron makes a bet on that country and Secretary of State Blinken heads to Beijing. And we begin this hour with a news alert surrounding a big rebalance happening in the S&P indices. Bob Pisani, how does this work? It's a, there's two things happening here, John. First, this is a, a triple witching. This is the quarterly expiration of stock and index options and index futures. It happens four times a year. Uh, it used to be a big deal. It's a little less of a big deal because there's many different options now available. You can trade options on a monthly basis. You can trade it uh, on even on a weekly basis, even on a daily basis. Uh, so what it's doing right now uh, is creating an awful lot of volume, not necessarily a lot of price changes. More interesting is what's going on with the S&P 500 because there's a rebalancing also happens four times a year. And what they, what they do here uh, is they put in additions and deletions. So right now, Palo Alto Networks at the open on Tuesday is going to become part of the S&P 500. At the same time, something's got to come out. If something goes in, Dish Network is going out. It's not only going out into the mid cap, it's actually going into a small cap, the S&P 600. This tends to produce pressure on the up and down side. Palo Alto Networks has been trading up in the last month or so. This was announced on June 2nd. Dish Network has been tending to trade down. This is a very well-studied phenomenon. It's called the S&P 500 effect. At the same time, John, there is also uh, rebalancing for stocks that are uh, adding or subtracting uh, to their share count. So remember, there are many companies out there buying back stock actively. Apple, Alphabet, Chevron are among them. Uh, other big companies that are uh, buying back stock throughout the quarter, uh, Chevron, Berkshire, ExxonMobil, Meta, all of them now are having their share count weighting reduced in the S&P 500 right now for those uh, ETFs, for example, that are index related. So if you're an S&P 500 index company right now, uh, like SPY, you're going to be reducing your share count of those particular companies. There's only one that's really notable that's actually increasing its share count, and that's NVIDIA, which has been an absolute monster. The shares outstanding have increased somewhat uh, in the last three months. So NVIDIA uh, is adding. NVIDIA is becoming more influential uh, in the S&P 500. Finally, John, I just want to note what's going on with Kava down here. You see it's uh, closing down about 13%. Unfortunately, I call this the next day curse for IPOs. It's a, it's a major problem for the IPO industry. Recall yesterday, Kava had an enormous day to the upside uh, and it was up almost 100%. And you see it trading down about 13%. So this is a first day curse. This is a very well studied phenomenon. Most of the gains due to the first day in an IPO. And then you see what happens on the second day. John, back to you. All right. I'll actually take it, Bob. Bob Pisani, thanks.
And of course, we're going into a okay. holiday weekend, so that, I think, contributing to some of the trading action we saw today, too. For more on the markets, let's bring in Bob Elliott, CEO and CIO of Unlimited Funds. Bob, great to have you back on the show. Um, in the past, you have been cautious around equities. You've talked about cash and, and keeping up uh, part of your position in, in cash. I wonder, given the rally we've seen, and yes, we, we finished the day lower on the major averages, but just given the fact that the S&P has finished the week higher for the fifth straight week, the last time we saw that was November of 2021. Have you been participating more in this? How are you thinking about it? Yeah, well, I think when I was talking about cash, what I, what I was talking about was uh, looking at cash relative to all financial assets. Mm. And, and that's been a trade that's basically been flat over the course of the last six weeks. The thing that's been going on that's been meaningful is stocks outperforming bonds. And the reason why that is, is because we're in this environment where the Fed remains a couple steps behind. And that was reinforced this week with their commentary. The result of that is that you're continuing to see liquidity move into stocks that benefit from continued reasonable growth and elevated inflation. And you see a particularly bad environment for bonds, which suffer from uh, the need for higher monetary policy and continued elevated inflation pressures. And so it really is a stock versus bond story more than it is a cash versus asset story that we're seeing. So, so in terms of the story that you just laid out, how I guess how much does it persevere beyond the next two weeks where we are seeing rebalancing and we're in, seeing institutional money uh, basically go to work in equities right now as we do come up on the end of the quarter? Well, I think the main question is how long is it going to take before we start to really meaningfully cut back the liquidity in the system? And at least so far, what what's going on in, in the overall picture, like you have Kava, the IPA, IPO goes up 100% on the first day. That's not an environment where money has become tight, right? There is still this incredible flow of liquidity that is flowing from one interesting small bubble to another, whether it's NVIDIA or whether it's the newest IPO, et cetera, et cetera. And until we see a point where the Fed starts to get ahead of the curve, where they start to actually tighten sufficiently to, to slow the economy and bring, thing, and bring liquidity uh, down in the economy, you're not really going to see much of a change. And so I'd expect to continue to see stocks outperforming bonds over the course of you know, the next few months until the Fed starts to really move in the way that they need to. Okay, you don't expect that. At the same time, um, we've got some challenges in the second half, I would think, because you've got a consumer that's slowing a bit, and we've got Q4 coming up. Then at the same time, you know, uh, last year's second half was rough on the market. So which outweighs which? Yeah, there's still a lot of momentum in the system. I think that's the important thing to, to recognize. If you look at, you know, overall growth, uh, we're still looking at or above potential unemployment rate is still basically at secular lows and income growth remains pretty strong, five, six percent, depending on how you measure it. That's a pretty good environment for consumers. Now, of course, there are a few uh, a few things coming up in terms of, you know, like the restart of student loan payments. Uh, but that's going to be pretty modest, pretty targeted. We're talking about a few tenths of a percent of GDP from that sort of restart. Uh, and you're going to see continued, you know, a, a slight pickup in issuance. That's probably going to be a bit worse for the bond market than it is for the stock market. And so at least for right now, when you look even at the most cyclical parts of the economy, manufacturing is still kind of growing a bit. Housing is rebounding a bit, it seems. You know, 
things are not lining up the way they would if we were start to, starting to move into a relatively, you know, acute recessionary environment. Instead, it seems like if anything's and if anything, things are picking up a little bit over the course of the last six or eight weeks now that the uh, the banking issues have largely are largely behind us. Yeah, but looking at the regional banks, you might not know it. I mean, you think they're going to continue to muddle along there, the KRE around 43, 44 a share? Yeah, I mean, I, we, we talked a little bit about this last week and, 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 and looking at the banking data, you know, even last week, what we saw was bank deposits actually picked up over the week. Uh, the stock prices have rebounded, but we're still at levels that are consistent with where they were right after the SVB concerns and where there was a real concern that we were going to have uh, a, a bank run in the system. Those concerns have largely been alleviated. The banks are reducing their reliance on short-term liquidity measures from like the Federal Home Loan Bank uh, overall. And as a result of that, they're looking in better shape on a forward-looking basis. And what we're actually starting to see is those banks are picking up their lending. And so it, it's pretty difficult to imagine that the banks would be picking up their lending if they were really concerned about uh, a short-term squeeze or a bank run. Uh, and all that points to a bit of uh, maybe acceleration over the third quarter in the U.S. economy. Okay, we'll look for it. Bob Elliott, thank you. Now let's talk chips. Micron announcing a deeper commitment to China. The U.S. chip maker saying it will invest $600 million over the next few years in a Chinese facility. Now, the company also today warned of a bigger hit to its revenue from an earlier announced crackdown on some sales of its chips in China. Joining us now is Pat Moorhead, founder of More Insights and Strategy. Uh, Pat, how much of this is perhaps one thing related to another if China's concerned? I mean, they can't be concerned about content because they censor that. So it's not a TikTok type issue. But right. is, is Micron trying to make more stuff in China to prove to China that it can be trusted? John, that's absolutely what's happening. And, you know, there there's been an ongoing conversation probably for 20 years that the way you impress China is one of two ways. You either transfer them IP or you make major investments in the country. And because Micron would probably not be able to transfer IP based on CFIUS, uh, here we are, they're making a major investment uh, uh, in the country. And quite frankly, Micron is, is being squeezed between this 20-year conflict between uh, China and the U.S. So, I mean, is this is this surprising to see that they're making this investment or is this really something to be expected? I mean, how to think about this as an investor on a day where we did get these headlines and the stock finished lower? Yeah, I think we have to take what the company said at face value, where they're essentially doubling their doubling their exposure. But I think the company also wanted to show that it's investing in China for the long term. And I think when I read between the lines, I, I can't see them making this major investment if they thought they were going to be zeroed out uh, of the country like a Facebook or a Google or an Instagram or, or a Twitter. So I actually see this as a, as a, as a positive sign. Okay. So looking into now the back half of the year, going a little bit broader on the semiconductors, there's been a run in some, but, but not all, um, as strongly. How much optimism do you think is built in? How much of that is based on inventories perhaps being worked down? How long lasting do you think that is? So uh, the, the PC market, that has taken its course. And I think we're going to see 
natural market forces, meaning the second half will be a lot bigger than the first half. And the whole supply chain looks pretty clear. I think we got an indication last quarter from some of the supply chain that smartphones were actually getting out of the system, particularly Android smartphones, a little bit uh, slower than they wanted. And then we saw from the Intels and the AMDs that there looks like there's a hyperscaler data center, a little bit of a glut uh, happening in, the, in there if you're not directly tied to generative AI. So I think the second half is going to look better than the first half just based upon how bad the first half was, particularly for uh, smartphones and PCs. But I, see, I still think it's a, a relative unknown for the second half in the data center. And although we should all be excited about generative AI, you don't have to replace the entire ecosystem to be able to do that. You just need higher performing GPUs. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see how much of that, I guess, is priced. Yeah. Uh, and in the meantime, the stock might have finished the day lower, but Micron, like many of the other semi stocks, uh, has been on quite a tear recently. Patrick Moorhead, thank you. Thank you. After the break, much more on China. Former Morgan Stanley Asia chairman Stephen Roach joins us to discuss the outlook for investing in that country as Secretary of State Blinken heads to Beijing amid heightened tensions with Washington. And we are awaiting bank balance sheet data from the Fed because it's Friday. We're going to bring you that breaking news when overtime comes right back. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Overtime. Check out Chinese tech stocks, seeing a boost this month. Names like Alibaba, JD.com, and Baidu all up double digits. This coming as Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to Beijing this weekend, his first trip to China under the Biden administration. Joining us now, Stephen Roach, Yale University senior fellow and a former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. Stephen, great to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Morgan. I do want to start with this uh, very anticipated meeting um, between Blinken and his counterparts in, in China. Your expectations, are we actually going to see any kind of diplomatic breakthrough or thaw in terms of the relationship between these two countries? I doubt it. This is um, you know, a meeting that was supposed to take place over four months ago and was um, uh, deferred for um, very contentious reasons. And if anything, circumstances have gotten a lot worse politically between 
the two countries uh, since then with a, a number of uh, incidents. And, you know, politics drives diplomacy and the bipartisan um, sentiment in, in Congress right now is so anti-China that I think Blinken's hands are really tied here. I, I have low expectations. Uh, it possibly, uh, you know, that's an opportunity for a, a bit of a surprise, but um, I wouldn't count on it. Yeah. I mean, and, and we can talk about the geopolitics and, and the tensions there, but how about the politics domestically in China? Because we did see data this week coming out of the country uh, that missed expectations. It was disappointing. Uh, you have an unemployment rate among young adults that is greater than 20 percent right now. Some real signs of softness in that economy, despite uh, reopening coming out of COVID. Growing expectations, you're going to see more stimulus there as well. How much how much does that factor into how investors need to think about investing in the country and well, I guess also into these talks that we're going to see unfold over the next couple of days? Well, I'd make the distinction between um, the weakness in the economy, which is you correctly described as very problematic for China and, and will evoke a, a fairly significant stimulus to be announced shortly uh, by uh, Beijing. Uh, and uh, any response that China may have because of that weakness uh, to the United States. I think there are two different sets of uh, considerations, two different buckets. Uh, and I think uh, China is just going to hold, hold a very tough line with respect to the U.S. Stephen, got to mention, you got this new book out, Accidental Conflict, America, China and the Clash of false narratives, you say that both sides have the wrong idea about each other and that there is a way to forge an advantageous relationship from here. First, what does China have wrong about the U.S. and its motives that's relevant to the market here? Well, the, the book focuses on uh, equally on false narratives on both sides. One of the leading ones uh, from the Chinese side, uh, John, is that uh, China blames U.S. strategic containment uh, for its uh, inability to reform and restructure its economy. Uh, China hasn't reformed and restructured its economy uh, because of its own flawed strategy. It has very little, if not anything, to do with uh, America's aggressive policies of containment. And so what do we believe wrong about China that uh, where there's perhaps economic opportunity here? Well, we believe that uh, uh, China is um, uh, the, the largest contributor to our uh, trade deficit, which has destroyed American uh, companies, jobs, and uh, communities. And they're, they're um, doing that because of uh, the way they cheat on trade. What that um, narrative fails to take into account is that we had trade deficits last year, John, with 106 countries in large part reflecting our own shortfall of domestic savings. So we put tariffs on China to try to solve our trade problems for American families, and it, and it does nothing. It squeezes the Chinese piece of our trade deficit, but it shifts it to other higher cost countries that still put a lot of pressure on American companies. Yeah, I mean, key context and nuance that you're laying out for us, uh, and that tends to be missing from a very... Uh, bifurcated discussion or debate. Um, what does all this mean in terms of investing in China, especially when you have seen 
stocks uh, rally so incredibly in recent weeks? Well, they've rallied, you know, off a very um, uh, low base. And, and so, you know, the Chinese market has really been under significant pressure uh, for quite some time, Morgan. Uh, the, the tech stocks that you were talking of earlier have been especially hard hit by um, the, the regulatory pressures that uh, Beijing has put on internet platform companies that uh, do not uh, align with the, the social values of, of the Chinese leadership. And while they want to uh, spin the idea that they're done with squeezing the companies, they're far from done in putting pressure on live streaming, uh, music, um, uh, gaming, uh, mm. private sector tutoring. I mean, those those pressures are very real, and that's what's uh, contributing to the very high youth unemployment that you also correctly described. All right. Stephen Roach, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Up next, Bank of America's chart experts going to take a look at the FOMO rally we have seen this year in the market and if it means new highs are coming for the S&P 500 this summer. Overtime will be right back. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Welcome back to Overtime. The S&P 500 is on track for its best month since January as the bulls take charge of the narrative. And our next guest says the so-called FOMO rally could have more room to run. Joining us now is Bank of America Chief Equity Technical Strategist Stephen Suttmeyer. Well, really? I mean, because when I hear FOMO, I think danger, right? Maybe it's because I'm a parent. But is it enough room to run that, that one should really add to positions here or just not dump out of them? Um, I, I would say a little bit of both, actually. Um, we are in one of the better seasonal parts of the year, uh, June through August, where the market typically sees a summer rally. But I think what's even more important is we have cleared some important resistances on the S&P. First and foremost is the 4200 level, which I think is a level that triggered FOMO uh, to get the market to go to new 52-week highs beyond 4328. So when we look at our technical price pattern on the S&P, we think that breakout above uh, of 4,200 suggests that we can trade into the 4,500s on, on a summer rally here. Uh, now, are you just looking at the S&P? Because I'm a little concerned about the concentration of some of these mega caps, particularly the ones where people have been excited about AI and whatnot over the past few months. Um, sh should I be? Well, I mean, look, I mean, there could be rotation in the market, cor correctly so. Uh, but what I think is going on here is that a lot of people are complaining about poor market breadth, but I would argue just the opposite. You're actually seeing improvement in market breadth. In fact, if you look at the S&P 500 advanced decline line, it went out at, a, at an all-time high earlier this week. So when the breadth line or participation in the market breaks out to a new, new all-time high, you know, sometime in the future, the S&P can do the same. So I think breadth has improved. And it's not just the advanced decline line. If you look at 
52-week highs, for instance, on the S&P, they're also expanding as the index has pushed towards and beyond that high from last August at 43.25. So one of your colleagues at B of A, Michael Hartnett, put out a, a note and basically said he's not convinced that we're at the start of a brand new shiny bull market. It still feels more like a combo of 2000 or 2008, a big rally before a collapse. When you look at the technicals, are, are there certain charts or certain patterns that you see that remind you of previous periods as well? Yes. Um, actually, that's a great question. And I do think that this is actually not like 2008 and 2000. I think it's more like 2019, 2016, and 2012. Why do I say that? Because the market's climbing a wall of worry. That's why. And in 2019, we were worried about a trade war with China. In 2016, it was all about Brexit and the presidential election. And the market was able to rally in the face of all that uncertainty and fear. And finally, when we take a look at 2012, that was Eurozone debt crisis. I mean, that a serious economic issue, yet the S&P and U.S. equities were able to wreck, uh, see beyond it and rally. So I think what keeps that technical pattern intact, just watch two moving averages. One's the 40-week and one's the 200-week moving average. Um, the 40-week is roughly around 4,000, and the 200-week is roughly around 3,800. In 2008, for instance, and 2000, coming off those highs, those moving averages broke, and you didn't get beyond them for a couple years. Right now, we're sitting comfortably above both. So I would argue that it looks more like a, a trough in the market. And uh, the bull market actually can date it all the way back to the October low. So it's not shiny and new. We're, we've been in one for, for about six or seven months already. Okay. Um, so the S&P closed above 4,400 again today, 4,409. In terms of the actual yep. levels that you're watching, uh, what are they? Sure. I mean, if you break out through a level such as 4325 and 4200, prior resistance often reverses roles and acts as a support. So if we did get a, a tactical pullback here, I would look for support in that range. Uh, already mentioned the 40-week and 200-week moving averages, which are bigger picture levels. Mm -hmm. And on the top side, I, I would say we're paying attention to the 4500 area. The uh, cup and handle is the technical name of the pattern we broke out from. It's the pattern that the market was in uh, from early February. That counts to about 4580. So we're saying 4500 is possible on a summer rally based on the breakout above 4200. All right. Love a good technical analysis. Steven Suttmeyer, thanks for joining us. Yep. And now you. we have a news alert out of the Fed. Leslie Picker has it. Leslie. Hey, John. Yes, this is the HA data out of the Fed showing deposit levels as of the week through June 7th. Uh, those levels had been trending upward, but system-wide deposits declining once again in that week through June 7th. All commercial banks were down about $79 billion week over week. That's a decline of 0.5%. Uh, large domestically chartered banks were leading the, the declines, uh, leading deposits to the downside here with declines of $77.6 billion week over week. That's a decline of 0.7%. Small domestically chartered banks down about $2.6 billion, so roughly flat based on uh, where they were the week prior. So large domestically chartered banks seeing more deposits exit the system in the week through June 7th, guys. All right. Leslie Picker, thank you. Time for a CNBC News update with Deirdre Bosa. Hi, D. Hey, Morgan. A new federal lawsuit accuses eight police officers in Ohio of using excessive force when they fired 94 bullets at a man during a foot chase. The family of Jalen Walker is seeking $45 million from the damage, in damages from the officers, the city of Akron, and city officials. 
The lawsuit claims the officers participated in a culture of violence and racism. It comes months after a grand jury declined to indict the officers in Walker's death. The weapons expert charged in connection with the deadly shooting on the set of the film Rust says claims that she was hung over the day it happened are, quote, recklessly false. Prosecutors made the allegation in response to Hannah Gutierrez's attempt to have the involuntary manslaughter charge against her dropped. Gutierrez, Reed allegedly handed Alec Baldwin the loaded prop gun that later killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins. And Gloria Estevan made history as the first Latina ever inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. She was honored last night during a ceremony in New York City. Estevan has won eight Grammys and sold 100 million records worldwide. John, back over to you. All right, Dee, thanks. Yeah, rhythm the rhythm is, is going to get, get you. you. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. Yes. After the break, the CEO of supply chain management company Flexport on the company's deal to buy Shopify's logistics business and the headwinds facing freight and transportation. And take a look at shares of Ball Corp. Getting a late day pop on news that it's looking to sell its aerospace unit for more than $5 billion. That's according to Reuters. Shares finished the day up 7%. Overtime. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Supply chain challenges are easing, inflation's cooling. That's welcome news for consumers. But as prices come down, how does that impact the shippers? Let's bring in Flexport CEO Dave Clark. He joined the global supply chain management company last year after more than 20 years at Amazon, most recently as CEO of Worldwide Consumer. Dave, great to have you on Overtime. Give me a sense of how uh, the, the global logistics situation looks as we start to look forward to the second half and uh, how your acquisition from Shopify will, will position you in that. Sure. Uh, thanks. And thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be here. You know, as we look into the second half of the year, the first half, uh, sort of as you alluded to, uh, price of freight dropping precipitously, getting back to at or below sort of where we were pre-COVID. Uh, lots of excess inventory in the system in the six-month range for most companies coming out of the holiday season into 2023. But the consumers held pretty solid through the year. And so I expect as we go into the back half, we're going to start to see companies placing more orders, start to come back to more of a normalized supply chain flow is what I expect to see. Uh, you know, we could still see a, a bit of a muted holiday. You know, we'll see how that plays out. But I think as we go into 2024, I think things are going to look a lot more normal. Inventory levels back to sort of typical, more pre-COVID level uh, and more traditional flow of goods through the supply chain. Okay. And the, and the acquisition we made with Shopify Logistics and Deliver sets us up, I think, well for that going into next year. It gives us the capabilities now, sort of the last missing puzzle piece to be able to go end to end from manufacturer all the way to customer store or door uh, for each one of our clients to meet their needs and Dave, through via distribution or fulfillment. Dave, uh, logistics build outs are so hard and the cost of capital has gone up. I mean, we've certainly seen it kind of messed up uh, in, in the last mile logistics business for a long time. You know better than anybody how hard it is having done it at, at Amazon. How hard is it going to be to, in effect, compete with Amazon serving SMB now in the e-commerce business? And how do you balance the need to, to be comprehensive and have scale with the need to be efficient? Yeah, certainly not a business for the faint of heart. Uh, it's, uh, it is supply chain is, a, you know, you're only as good as what you delivered yesterday. Uh, and what you can do tomorrow for customers. So it's definitely a tough place to live. 
Uh, one, I would say I don't view us as a competitor with uh, Amazon or Walmart or any of the marketplaces. Really, if you have demand or capacity, you're our friends. You're people we want to partner with. Our objective is to really enable companies to be able to activate, control, and manage their supply chain. We want a lot of partners, and we want to be able to service our customers via those partners wherever they choose to sell, whether it's their own store, Amazon, or Walmart, or Shopify, or wherever that might be. Can you clarify... Can you clarify how you're not a competitor to Amazon in the sense that Shopify seemed to be trying to arm small and medium businesses with more control over their own destiny and viewed having logistics as an option under them as a part of that? Now that you have that, that business, aren't you sort of an Amazon alternative or, or how, how not? Well, I think it, we're a delivery alternative in the same way that a UPS or a DHL or FedEx or someone else is. You know, we're, we're in the business of providing fulfillment services, delivery services, ocean and air freight, and overall supply chain management. Amazon does that as well, but they do that really in the act of servicing Prime. You know, that business is all about you know, providing a Prime service for customers. We're all about providing our customers supply chain service no matter where they sell you know, we would be, we're perfectly happy in the world to help share data with an Amazon or a Walmart by bringing freight into the U.S., storing it, and then delivering it to an Amazon fulfillment center for last mile delivery. We want to enable our customers' supply chain wherever they're going to meet their clients at. So if they meet their customers on Walmart, we'll go there. If they meet them on Shopify, we'll meet them there. And we were aligned with Shopify on that because that's basically the way Shopify operates too. Their, their mission is to simply, you know, basically be the operating system of commerce. We want to be the operating system of the global supply chain. And we think that's agnostic of, of any of the marketplaces. Yeah, Dave, uh, it's Morgan. It's good to see you. I, I want to pick up on something you said earlier, which was that the holiday season might be a little softer this year. I mean, that jives with the new CNBC supply chain survey that's out today that shows that retailers are preparing for a discount-heavy down holiday season. Why do you think it could be softer? And when you look at some of the freight data that is coming out of China and the fact that it's so weak right now, how much of this has to do with those softer expectations versus the fact that maybe more supply chains are moving out of that country? Well, I look at it as, to some degree, some of the softness may be predetermined in that if you don't order it, you can't sell. And so to some degree, these stores stocking less will mean that there's less of a holiday season. I think it will be heavily, there'll be a lot of discounts, uh, but at some point we'll be too late if demand holds for supply to reach to be there for the holiday. And so you may, you could very well see a situation this holiday where customer demand is strong, uh, but the inventory of the really hot, the things that people really want just run out of supply much earlier in the season uh, as a result of muted, muted orders. Uh, we just saw Kava IPO yesterday. It had a very strong first day out of the gate. There's been a lot of expectation over the last couple of years that we could see Flexport go public as well. Uh, what are the plans, and how closely did you watch this debut this week? Yeah, it was good to see uh, some success in the IPO market. Uh, really happy for those folks. Uh, it looked like a good week for them. I, I, my focus is I want to build an incredibly compelling set of products and services. I want to get those built to scale, because as we discussed earlier, this business really is all about scale. And we need to get scale over the next 18 months and a bunch of our new products. And then I think that when the market's ready, the market's going to come seek us. And that's the way we're setting it up. You know, I would hope that we're in a position to do that over the next couple of years, but that's not my focus right now. All right. Dave Clark, 
CEO of Flexport. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Up next, we'll hear from the CEO of an under-the-radar company in the defense space that's benefiting from the artificial intelligence hype. And take a look at shares of Squarespace, hitting a 52-week high today on news that the company is buying 10 million registered domains from Google's domains business. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Overtime. Artificial intelligence as a matter of national security in focus this week as lawmakers are, are marking up the defense policy bills for fiscal 2024. The U.S. military has been actively adopting AI capabilities. It's something we've discussed with Androl and C3AI, two DOD contractors on the show. The investing furor around AI has sent stocks associated with it soaring, including C3AI as well as Palantir, which is up 150% this year. But it's also impacted smaller stocks like Big Bear AI, which provides AI-powered analytics for autonomous systems, cybersecurity, and also supply chain and logistics. We have really benefited from an increasing level of awareness around the application of artificial intelligence in a variety of different sectors. And while we don't operate in them all, right, nor do we intend to, for us, uh, the broader population and the investor community gaining an understanding of just how powerful these technologies are and how relevant they are to today's problems has put Big Bear AI in a really remarkable position. So Big, Big Bear went public via SPAC back in late 2021. Its market cap is small. It's just under $400 million. The stock, though, the chart, it's been a roller coaster ride. The company, though, has been growing double digits, receiving an Army contract extension just earlier this week. It recently partnered with L3 Harris to provide the AI, the computer vision, and all of the analytics for the Defense Prime's autonomous service vessel fleet. The way CEOs of these dual-use tech companies frame it, it's an AI arms race. We are, I think, for the first time in a long time, looking down a future where in the next two to five years we could be in a global conflict with a pure superpower who has been preparing. And as a result of that, you know, if you look at things like the projected federal AI spend in the coming years, there is an incredible amount of effort and resources appropriately being put into the preparation for that type of conflict so that um, we, right, as a society and as a country, can be prepared for what may, what may come of that. I think from, from Big Bear's perspective, and, and I've talked about this recently in, in earnings and some other environments, is our adversaries would love for us to hit the pause button. All right. Uh, John, I know we've talked about this before, but it, it, it's worth discussing again, uh, especially in the case of Big Bear, when you have a stock that's now up 273 percent since the start of the year, perhaps in part. It's been a little bit of that meme craze, I mean, a name that's trading around right, it was AI under a buck. in the name. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's worth noting that this is a company that has been around for more than two decades and actually does have business, most of it with the U.S. government, whether it's DOD or, or intelligence. Um, and you are seeing this increased demand as generative AI is being discussed and put to, to use in more ways. I, I wonder, I mean, this seems like the kind of company that's ripe for a potential, I mean, if there is consolidation here, they don't look like a buyer. I would, I would put it that yeah. way. But I, I wonder how many companies there are like that that you see in the ecosystem that, I mean, maybe they will make a go of it independently, but maybe not. 
Yeah. I, I also just think it's very interesting to hear those comments from Mandy Long, the CEO, who came from IBM, joined from IBM. Uh, it's, it's very, it reminds me a lot of what we've heard from Alex Karp in recent months, too, uh, where this dynamic or, say, you know, some of the other big AI startups that are for like, like an Alex Wang over at Scale AI around this dynamic uh, and what it means not just from an innovation and a commercial standpoint, but in terms of geopolitics and the ramifications we're going to see around all of that, too. It kind of gets back at that whole, why, you know, pause or not pause. When you have a China also developing this type of technology, you have defense contractors who are saying don't pause. Yeah, um, not really an option there. Yeah, good stuff. And we have a news alert here. Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsbee speaking to NPR right now, one of the first Fed officials to speak since Wednesday's pause. Goolsbee saying there is conflicting data on whether we are too hot or we've done enough, adding he doesn't take much confidence from the May CPI data and that the Fed is trying to get inflation down without starting a big recession. Goolsbee also saying there is very clear evidence that banks are tightening lending standards. I mean, I look forward to hearing about more of that evidence, Morgan. I keep hearing that uh, the standards aren't tightening as quickly as some thought they would. Yeah, it was interesting, though, to see some of the headlines that were generated at that financials conference, at Morgan Stanley Financials Conference earlier in the week, um, because you you did see, and I want to say, well, I don't have it in front of me, but you did see a number of banks actually say that they are cutting back on origination of certain types of loans, whether mm -hmm. it was autos or whether it was office, commercial real estate. So you are starting to see some of that tightening, um, or at least I would say more caution around very specific sectors in, in terms of what that lending is going to look like moving forward. But to your point, it hasn't necessarily been a meaningful shift uh, that's showing up in the data. Yeah, seems like as long as employment stays strong, consumer spending is staying strong, and that's propping up a number of things. Yeah, and of course, Goolsby is somebody to watch because he tends to be more dovish since he has joined the board and is a, vo a voting member. Yes, yes, indeed. Now, Monday is Juneteenth, and that's a good time to look at the progress and hurdles surrounding the racial pay gap in America. Up next, the latest data from Just Capital on the companies that are making inroads toward pay parity. As corporate America continues to address disparities in the workplace, some companies are focusing on employee pay. Our Brandon Gomez joins us here on set with more. Brandon. Yeah, John, thanks for having me on set. Morgan. Uh, yes, we are headed into a three-day weekend. Markets are closed on Monday. This will be the second time Juneteenth is celebrated as a federal holiday, commemorating the day President Lincoln freed enslaved African Americans. Now, companies focused on advancing racial equity. According to our partners at Just Capital, Americans believe one of the top ways corporations can do that is actually through pay equity. Now, based on the public data, here's what Just Capital found. Only 4% of America's largest companies have successfully closed the racial pay gap. Now, companies like Apple, Intel, and Verizon, among the names at parity you see there in the center column, reporting a one-to-one -one or dollar-for-dollar -dollar ratio. Some companies on the cusp, Amazon, Pepsi, Bank of America, just shy of parity by a few cents, Microsoft, GE, going beyond, now, what does it take for companies to actually reach parity? Well, it starts with an internal audit. In 2022, 24% of companies in the Russell 1000 covered by Just Capital conducted a pay equity analysis by race and ethnicity. Of that group, only 9% disclosed results. 
Now, it's a small percent, but it's an improvement on last year, nearly double the number of companies conducting audits and more than double reporting out results this year. So, John Morgan, room for improvement for sure, but progress nonetheless. So when we, so some of these names were actually really got my attention, GE, Microsoft, um, some of the others. The fact that it's only 4%, I mean, what have those 4% of companies been able to do and how have they been able to do it quickly, if they've been able to do it quickly? Yeah, so these are also companies that have been the most transparent around diversity as well, right? So it makes sense that they're also the most transparent about diversity when it comes to pay. So they're the companies that have been the most transparent when it comes to EEO-1 filings, which measure, measures workforce diversity as well. Those companies also have an abundance of resources to commit to providing opportunity programs, things like that. John, you know, Microsoft has so many programs for employees as well to sort of close that opportunity gap as much as they do the, the, the wealth gap as well. Now, what does pay equity these days mean? Is it based on the same job category, right? And it doesn't mean everybody in, in one group is getting paid the same as everybody in another group. It, it's by job category, right, or something like that? It can be job category. So it is all-inclusive, these studies, typically. Uh, so it will go everywhere from hourly to salary employees, as well as entry level, all the way up to executives. So Companies, it's a case-by-case -case basis how they conduct their own audits, but across the board, they are tending to be more comprehensive. Um, and then you also have to factor in that it's not just salary. It's also additional means of compensation like stock options as well. All right, Brandon Gomez, thanks for bringing us the latest. Thanks. Good to have you here on set. Well, up next, why Bristol-Myers Squibb is suing the Department of Health and Human Services. Late-breaking details when overtime returns. Welcome back. We have a news alert on Bristol Myers Squibbs. Bristol Myers Squibb. Bertha Coombs has it. Hi, Bertha. <laughs> hey, Morgan. Bristol Myers becoming the second drug maker to sue the government over the drug price negotiation part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Just as we saw uh, last week uh, with, uh, with other drug makers, uh, they're calling it coercive and unconstitutional because it forces drug makers to take the government's price or face massive fines. In a statement to CNBC, Bristol Myers says this program is bad for innovation and in turn the millions of patients who are counting on the pharmaceutical industry to develop new treatments and cures that save lives and improve health and well-being. It also violates the United States Constitution, they argue, because of that coercive nature. Now, we also saw, Morgan, that the Chamber of Commerce and the Chamber of Commerce Ohio, which is home to AbbVie, also filing suit on these same grounds. Bristol-Myers has a big stake in this, given that their Eliquist is one of the top spending drugs for Medicare. But a lot of folks aren't sure that they can file suit yet because they haven't named which companies they're going to negotiate with. Back okay. to you. A, a key story to watch. Thanks, Bertha, for bringing us the headlines on that. You got Etsy moving higher and a billion-dollar share buyback just authorized as well. On Tuesday, FedEx, one to watch with earnings after the bell, economic bellwether. We're going to watch that indeed. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us here at Overtime. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there, including you, all John Ford. Thank you. Fast Money starts now. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.